Blog Talk Radio. National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I want to welcome the callers and chatters to Research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest, and I do see several guests in the chat room tonight, and you wish to participate in the chat, please sign in through your Facebook account or blog, Talk Radio. Well, James Lewis Bacon will discuss his research that resulted in a book entitled The Tides That Bind, From Slavery to Freedom. James Lewis Bacon has entertained a lifelong passion for writing African-American history. He began his family research 35 years ago and published his book in 2016. He is a veteran of the United States Navy, where he proudly served from 1970 to 1974. Well, The Tides That Bind is a written tribute to his family, which documents both the hardships, strength, and fortitude of those who were enslaved. It is the story of the Van Osdale, Jackson, and Bowie family and their struggle to live as free black men and women. It traces their triumph as they emerged out of the uncertainty and unforgiving nature of bondage into a strange new world of freedom. It is also the story of the Industrial Savings Bank founded in 1913 by John Whitelaw Lewis and William August Bowie, who was the grandson of a slave and their important historical contributions to black Washington, D.C. So let me give a warm welcome to James Lewis Bacon to research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, James. Thank you for having me. Well, I am really looking forward to you sharing your story with us tonight. So let's begin with your beginning. Why did you decide to trace your family history? 
Uh, I began uh, my family research because I had very little information about my father's family. My father's mother died at the age of 29 in 1934 when he was just four years old. And the family history that she would have shared with him and his siblings had she lived was lost with her. Because Dad was so young when his mother passed away, he had very few memories of her with the exception of remembering the hearse which carried her to the cemetery. My dad died in 2009, and it gave me great joy knowing that I was able to share with him many of the discoveries that I made in regards to my grandmother and her Bowie, Jackson, and Van Arsdale family lineage. My research would lead to the discovery of my fourth great-grandfather, Thomas Reland Jackson's role as a conductor of the Underground Railroad in Jersey City, New Jersey, beginning in the 1840s, and the 1913 co-founding of the Industrial Savings Bank in Washington, D.C. by William A. Bowie, who was my great-uncle. So with that information, and you just mentioned two significant events that you were able to uh, document, how long did it take you to just kind of pull this together? Because you spoke of the Underground Railroad in New Jersey and then the bank in Washington, D.C. So take us, just help us go along with you on this journey about the sources, where did you look, and just lay it out for us. Well, uh, can I tell you why I wrote the book? Of course you can tell us why you wrote the book. (laughs) Well, the book, uh, the reason that I wrote the book, I, I decided to write it because after spending half my life, some 30 plus years doing family research, I felt the responsibility to my ancestors to share their story. I believe that while each African-American family story is truly a unique one, it is also a collective event of the black experience, which documents both the terrible effects of slavery, the unfulfilled promises of the Reconstruction era, and the dark age of Jim Crow and its aftermath. I feel that it is important for us to remember and build upon the sacrifices of our ancestors, who even while being victimized by the institution of slavery, never lost sight of their self-worth, humanity, and understanding of their inherent right to liberty. And so, Shen, you you mentioned the responsibility to tell their story. And this is something that you may have heard mentioned several times on my blog talk radio show, that it is important to to share that story, tell that story. So let's take it to the next level then. So your book includes an array of documents. So tell us about those documents. Where did you get them? Just take us on your journey now. Okay. Well, much of the documentation in my book came about through the availability of census, Freedman Bank, and military pension records. Uh, My most utilized research tool was the existence of old African-American newspapers. And during the 35-year span of my research, I was able to unearth 
numerous articles about my family in those newspapers. And where, so when you said old newspapers, just where did you find them? Well, fortunately, um, I had originally went to uh, investigate it in the Library of Congress. And fortunately, the Library of Congress has preserved many, many African-American newspapers throughout the United States. And I was just fortunate to to find uh, where they had still, uh, uh, they had microfilmed a number of, of uh, newspapers. Uh, one particular newspaper for me investigating my Bowie family uh, was in existence of a newspaper called the uh, uh, Washington B newspaper. Uh, it's, it was originally published, I believe, in the late uh, 1890s, and it and the publication uh, ceased in uh, the year 1921. But fortunately, uh, I was able to find a lot of uh, articles written on my family. They were very well known in Washington, in Black Washington D.C., and I was able to find a lot of information from those newspapers. And those were, and that particular newspaper was on the um, Library of Congress website. Uh, what 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 I what I found was, um, I had found that uh, I had I had actually Googled uh, 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 newspaper archives, and it and it took me to the Library of Congress, and they have actually indexed. Uh, certain years of the newspapers, and from that point, once I found what was in existence, at that time I had went to a company called Scholarly Research, and they actually uh, allowed me to purchase uh, microfilm copies of these particular uh, dates and editions of the newspaper. So once I received those, I was able to to go through page by page of the uh, microfilm. And at what uh, point in your research did you tap into the newspapers? Well, actually, uh, the newspapers basically, uh, early in my research, uh, I would say the newspapers came into it, but the first newspapers that I actually uh, research were, were a newspaper called the Washington Post. That newspaper had a very long run. It, it, it ran uh, many, many years. And um, I would find articles on, on my uh, great-great-grandparents. Great I, uh, I found an article uh, that was uh, printed in 1916 where it had mentioned that they were, um, that they were celebrating their their 50th wedding anniversary. They called it a golden wedding anniversary, and it was a long story. It even mentioned about the fact that he had been, he was a former slave. It, it had a, a, a large amount of information, but no photograph. Uh, and uh, I spent, from that time that I found that article in the Washington Post, I spent the next 20 years trying to find a picture of my great-great-grandparents because I just, something in my mind, in, in my heart, told me that, that, that it, it existed. And uh, what happened was, from that point on, um, I found, uh, once I found the existence of, of the Washington Bee, which was an African-American newspaper, 
uh, I actually, 20 years later, I was actually able to find a similar uh, a similar article on their 50th wedding anniversary. But the good thing about this article in the black newspaper is that it had a photograph of my great-great-grandfather and great-great-grandmother, which is the first time that I had ever seen them. And I, by the time I found that photograph, I had already been researching them for 30 years. Wow. And since we have photos that you have given to us scrolling across the top of the screen, tell us, uh, did that picture, or is that picture up there on the screen? It should be. It's a it's a it's a photograph of of a couple. Of, uh, actually, there were two photographs uh, of of a uh, uh, African American couple. But this particular picture, uh, they're standing, not seated, and uh, uh, that is the uh, my great great grandfather Nathaniel Bowie and his wife Victoria Bowie. Wow, this is wonderful. In fact, someone has just posted the newspaper online <laughs> so that we can see it. Wow, this is this is wonderful just to find that photograph and nobody in your family had that photograph? Well, I found out many years later because I I met many cousins during the 35 years of my research. I was fortunate enough to to trace uh to some some cousins that I didn't know existed, and they were aware, and they 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 also had they had a copy of the original uh, newspaper article, and uh, with the picture in it. So they were they were familiar with the picture, but uh, we don't really know where the original is. Uh, uh, my my um, one of my family members. Um, that was the granddaughter of uh, one of the uh, Bowie daughters. Uh, when her mom died, she actually donated uh, many, many uh, uh, personal articles of, of uh, my great-great-grandparents uh, uh, to a museum um, in Washington, D.C. I'm trying to remember the name of that uh, museum, uh, uh, Anacostia Museum. So a lot mm -hmm. of the family... A lot of the family uh, uh, relics are, are in that museum, which I had an opportunity to to go about four years ago, and we actually were able to to view the family Bible. Oh, that is wonderful that you were able to see that. So I want to begin with something that you began with in your book. Your first chapter of your book is entitled Freedom Call. And you begin this chapter with the last will and testament of Abraham Van Ostelen. So what Barsdale. is significant about this will and testament, and where did you find it? Well, Abraham Van Orsdale. Uh, Orsdale, okay. Yeah, it's actually Van Orsdale in um, that was actually his name, and my my uh, fifth great grandfather, uh, when he was freed, he dropped the end off that name, so he became Van Arsdale. Uh, the way that I discovered um, Abraham um, was 
I uh, had actually, going by the name Joseph Van Arsdale, who was my uh, fifth great-grandfather, what I did was I started searching through the Somerset County uh, manumission uh, records, and I was able to find a Joseph Van Arsdale, uh, and, and it showed that he was, man, uh, he was emancipated by Abraham Van Arsdale. So that's how I began the story. So that individuals would know that the will and testament did include Joe's name in it. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, the original, the original, um, when when uh, Abraham died in 1821, two years later, uh, his will was probated in 1821. And two years later, the executors of of his estate they they uh, emancipated my fifth great grandfather, and he was emancipated uh, on June 6th. Uh, 1823. Now, before you found this particular record, did you know anything or have any prior knowledge of your ancestor being emancipated that early on? Yes, I did. And uh, I was fortunate enough. uh, I had a mentor who was my cousin, and uh, he's deceased. Uh, He was a... uh, a professor, he was a uh, professional genealogist, and he had written a number of books, and he had actually started the research on the Van Arsdale family. And uh, when we met through through research, and by the time I met him, we we had both been researching the same line, and we shared we shared what we had found, and. Uh, he um, he gave me a lot of a lot of in- valuable information, and uh, you know I mentioned him in in my book. So so many people are you know just kind of wondering just how do you go about finding the wills and testaments? So just tell us your process again. I'm I'm really going to ask you a lot about your process because that's the the part of genealogy that's sometimes very difficult for um, African Americans to find their ancestors, not only uh, in slavery, but to find them emancipated with the records. So tell us about your process. Well, uh, the way that I found the wills and things like that, uh, wherever, whatever area that you're searching, like for me it was uh, New Jersey for for Van Arsdale, and it was New Jersey for the Jackson family. Uh, you would have to you would have to uh, locate the register of wills, and um, also uh, known as probate. And uh, uh, I would I would check the probate records, and um, they would usually have an index. And once you found the index number you would be able to find individual do, uh documents like like the wills and uh um it's it's a it's a really good website called family search i i don't know whether you're familiar with it 
But oh, I was yes. able. Many of I was, us use Family Search. Right. I I was able to to actually locate uh, the Van Arsdale in um, uh, state records, along with many of my Jackson family, on there. But the first thing it's it's very complex. But the first thing you have to do is to locate the index, uh, and each each. Uh, each file has an index, and that index is what leads you to to different documents. Um, but um, like I say, once whenever you want to find wills, you have to go through the register of wills, and uh, there's always either a box number or whatever. Like in 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 uh, as far as like when I was researching uh, some of the Bowie family. Um, I had to actually go, like they were from Prince George County, Maryland, so I had to actually research Prince, Prince County, uh, Maryland, Registry of Wills. Uh, fortunately, mm-hmm. there, there are books that, that are published that, that have the indexes in there, and they'll actually show you, like, the, the case number, and those are usually what you take that case number and you can order the documents. Because every time I wanted to get copies of, of a will, I had to actually send, I had to actually write to the uh, register of wills, giving them that particular box number, and they would go through the estate records. And, and most of the time they would actually, well, do you want everything that's in there? Well, I would always tell them I want every document that you can find. It can be costly, but I didn't want to take a chance of missing anything. But it's a process. It's a long process. But uh, the important thing I, I would like to tell everybody is that I started my research with absolutely nothing. I had absolutely nothing. Uh, and I started with my father's mother, and uh, I first thing I did was I once I got her death certificate mostly not always but most of the time when you find a death certificate you will find the mother and father listed on that death certificate and you just work backwards that's how you get to the point of usually you can work backwards enough to to get to like maybe 1870 or 1860 once you most of the time, once you go past 1870, that's when you start hitting a brick wall because most, for most of us in the area of 1860, most of us, our ancestors, are in bondage at that point, and you hit a wall, but there's ways around that wall also. So tell us, how did you get around that wall? But before we do that, it looks like we have a caller on the line to ask you a question. So, Erico587, you're live. Do you have a question or a comment? Okay, I guess that person didn't have a question or a comment. <laughs> okay, <laughs> why don't you continue to, to share with us how you got beyond 1860 or 1870 for that matter? Right. I, I, got, I got beyond it because I... Like I said, I uh, once you once you get past 18, 1870, 1870, the census records for 1870, 
is usually the first uh, census record that we begin seeing our ancestors show up. Uh, by then, it's like five years after the end of the Civil War and emancipation, and they begin living in communities. In, in the 1870 census, you start seeing the families come back together because one of the horrible things about slavery was how it tore families apart. But most, 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 mostly uh, after slavery, many of our ancestors, they, they made a serious attempt to find their loved ones. Uh, I know that was in the case of my family. They went, they went looking for them. And, um, you know, so it was, it was a very painful process. And, um, and that was, like I said, that was 1870. In 1860, uh, a lot of, lot of families were still enslaved. Uh, and that's when you have to, um, that's when you have to start, uh, you know, like basically you have to start looking at the surname and uh, the area that you're in, and, and that's when you try to, to, to find the slave master. It's not always, in my case, I was very fortunate because my families were all freed early, but uh, it, most of the time when you, when you hit a brick wall, you know, like I know in my case, I had a long uh, period of, of research. You, if you hit that brick wall and you can't go any further, then a lot of times you have to go around and come to another, another family uh, a line and, and you will find that information sooner or later. But like I said, I, I researched probate records blindly, but I was fortunate. And when you say blindly, are you just saying you just looked at a whole bunch of probate records? So yeah, what I, was blind I, okay, about like, it? Like if my ancestors came from Prince George County, Maryland, then I would, I would just research that, that county that they came from. And like I uh -huh. said, I'm a, I'm a book person, so I would, I would purchase books. Uh, there's there's a, a large uh, uh, amount of books on genealogy for, for areas, and there's a lot of African-American ammunition uh, um, records and everything, and I would just, I just would, would not give up. I just continued, and, and I just was fortunate. Yes. Well, I also noticed uh, several, you, you include several documents in your book, but one of the documents was a runaway slave ad. So tell us about that particular slave ad. Well, in my book there, there actually are two runaway slave ads, and one was my, was my great-great-great-great-great-grandmother, uh, 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 Matilda Bowie. Uh, she um, she was also born in Prince George County, Maryland, and uh, she was a constant runaway. She uh, I, f I found many newspaper articles with her, and from the I would say from from the 1830s to the 1840s, she was constantly running away. And I think the reason that that she was running away is that she had a husband on another plantation. Uh, and um, 
she uh, she would be caught and they would put her in uh, Washington jail and then they would return her to a slave owner and she'd run away again. And this went on for, for a period of time. And uh, finally, um, uh, what happened was is that uh, my uh, her husband's slave owner either traded or, or purchased her uh, away from her slave master, and the family was re- reunited on the plantation. And you found this document to show you that this is what happened with the, your family? Yeah. Uh, w- what happened was is that in the description, if you read the the runaway slave article for Matilda, it says it said that she uh, had a husband on another plantation, and the, and the beautiful thing about the the uh, runaway slave uh, ad is it actually described her, and um, and then I found another runaway slave uh, ad for her son Jack Jack Bowie, and Jack was uh, also a constant runaway. And uh, what happened with him is his his mother and father and four uh, four of their of his siblings they were actually emancipated in uh, 1850, 1858, but Jack and another brother were not emancipated. And or just about the same time that that the uh, that his family was emancipated, uh, Jack ran away. He ran away from the plantation, and he was he was captured. And they were getting ready to sell him down south. And uh, the term down south meant that whenever there were unruly slaves, that's where they sent them. They sent them in, in like deep down in the south, where they knew that they were going to be treated very harshly. So what happened with his mother Matilda at that point? Uh, of course, Matilda and her family they they were they were freed at that point, and uh, Matilda uh, had a relationship with uh, with the Willard family, and the Willard family at that time were uh, they were owners of the Willard Hotel in Washington D.C. I don't know for sure uh, she appeared to have a trusting relationship with them because. She actually went to them, and she pleaded for uh, for them to intercede on on her son's behalf because she knew that if he was sold south, she would never see him again. And uh, what happened was the Willard brothers, two of the Willard brothers, uh, they actually purchased Jack for a thousand dollars, and they uh, once they purchased him, they they set him free. Wow, she must have had a really good relationship with them. Yeah, you know what, what, what I think, story. what I what I what I believe the the relationship must have been. Uh, the Willards, uh, like I said, the hotel uh, was in Washington D.C., and the Willards were known to employ former slaves, and I believe that relationship came out of the fact that that she possibly had worked for that family because years later. My great great grandfather was given employment by the same family. 
That's, that sounds like that's possible then, yes. Wow. Well, we're going to take a quick break, but before we do, I need to ask you, you mentioned early on when you started talking about the Underground Railroad. So tell us what role did your family play in the Underground Railroad? Okay. Uh, my uh, my family in, in Jersey City, um, they were they were named the Jackson Brothers. Uh, my my fourth great grandfather's name was Thomas Reeland Jackson, and his brother's name was was John. Uh, Thomas was was born in 1803, and his brother John were uh, he was born in 1800, and they they were slaves on the estate of Richard Reeland Jackson. And uh, he freed them between the, the years 1825 and 1830. Um, Thomas and John, they became oystermen on the Hudson River. And after becoming prosperous, they became one of the first black families to purchase land in the area of Old Bergen County on, on uh, February 22, 1840. They, they divided up land among themselves, and they laid out a lane between their homes, which became Jackson Lane and later became Jackson Avenue. And during slavery, thousands of escaped slaves arrived in New Jersey from Virginia, Maryland, and the Carolinas. And from these states, they traveled north to the Delaware River, and they would cross over to Jersey City, which had functioned as the final station along the Underground Railroad route to New Jersey. And prior to the Civil War, the Jackson prop- property served as a way station and crucial link of the Underground Railroad, which enabled the two brothers to help thousands of slaves escape the freedom. Uh, in, in 2001, a, a plaque was dedicated and installed by New Jersey Transit in Jersey City, New Jersey, honoring John and Thomas Reeland Jackson's important role as conductors in the Underground Railroad. What a wonderful honor and a wonderful story. Now, do you have the pictures of Thomas and John Jackson uh, uh, strolling across the screen? Uh, the picture, you'll see a picture of, uh, of, of, a, of a couple seated, and we don't know exactly what Jacksons they, that that was, but that is a Jackson family that was uh, passed down through the family. And that's the, the those pictures are the pictures that are on the front of your book. Yes. Mhm. Okay. Well, we're going to take a quick break and come back and talk a little bit about the Civil War and the role that your family played in the Civil okay. War. Okay. Okay.
Welcome back to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, where I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy and history questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded from Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, TuneIn.com, and Stitcher.com. Now, you have been listening to James Lewis Bacon share his story, his research on his family, and what's written in his book. The Ties That Bind, From Slavery to Freedom. And we've heard several of the From Slavery to Freedom stories. So take us to the Civil War and the role that your family or family members played in the Civil War. Okay. um, I'm going to give them some background on William Bowie. Okay. William uh, Bowie Jr., um, he was uh, one of the two Bowie family members that were not freed when his family were freed. Uh, And I first found him in uh, military uh, historical records, and it it had an entry where it said, William Bowie, a slave uh, of Nathaniel uh, McGregor, uh, drafted as a slave in Ellicott Mills, um, Maryland. And uh, once I found that, that listing, uh, for, for many years I tried to find his service records, but uh, I, I, never, I, never, uh, I never had a, uh, any, any luck at all at that point, and I think this went on for about 10 years. Uh, anyway, I have this story basically tells how complex uh, slave research can be. Um, William Bowie Jr., also known as Robert Bowie and Robert Tompkins, is is an example of the often complex nature of African-American research. William, while still a slave, was listed in historical records as being drafted into the Civil War on September 24, 1865, at Ellicott Mills, Maryland. And for several several years, using that date and draft location as a starting point, I was unable to locate his military records. Uh, A chance discovery in 2015 of a 1912 obituary in a New York, I'm sorry, in a Washington, D.C. newspaper, and an examination of a military pension records of a Robert Tompkins, also known as Robert Bowie, uncovered the mystery of William's military service for me. Before William could be drafted, while he was still a slave, he ran away from the Maryland plantation of his deceased owner's brother, and he went to Washington, D.C., where he changed his name to Robert Tompkins and enlisted in the 38th Regiment Infantry of the United States Colored Troops to fight in the Civil War. Using both his name change and escape into the Civil War, William was never caught and sent back into his life of bondage. He had trusted no strangers with his secret, 
not even his military comrades. In fact, he had only discussed it, it at all was in the year 1895. He had fallen from a scaffold and broken his right ankle. He was 59 years old at the time, and the injury had crippled him. Well, unable to work, he turned to the only source of aid that he could find, and that was the Military Pension Bureau for Financial Assistance. His prior military life as Robert Tompkins forced him to prove to the Pension Bureau that he was William Bowie, Robert Tompkins, and Robert Bowie were one and the same. And this set up a series of depositions that were taken from several witnesses and family members to prove to the Pension Bureau's satisfaction that he was indeed the Robert Tompkins who had served in the military. Uh, one of the most misleading pieces of information that was on his military records and death certificate, it states that William was born in Virginia and not Maryland, which came about through a conversation William had with members of Sherman's army that he came upon after his escape from slavery. They had asked him where he had just come from, and he told them Virginia, meaning he had come through Virginia, and they mistakenly took, took this to mean that he was born in Virginia. Uh, and that mistake ended up on his death certificate, where, where I found uh, the listing that he was born in Virginia. And for years, I couldn't make the connection because I knew that, that my William was born in Prince County, uh, Maryland. Uh, I'm going to read uh, a few uh, excerpts from my book, and uh, to give the uh, listeners an idea of what was contained in in his military pension records. Uh, uh, there was a deposition A, and it states, uh, this is from William Bowie, it states, I am 75 years of age. My post office address is 1403 First Street, Northwest Washington, D.C. I am a night watchman when able to work. I am the identical person who served as a private in Company F, 38 United States Colored Troops Infantry, under the name Robert Tompkins. I enlisted in the spring of 1865 in Washington, D.C., at 19th Street Northwest at the Provo Marshal. Question, did you enlist for yourself? Answer, no, I went in place of a Dutchman who kept a shoe store. I only saw him the day of enlistment, and I don't know his name. I went as a substitute for him, and he paid $800 to the government. I received the $800 after my discharge in the spring of 1866. Uh, I held the rank of private the whole time. I was never a corporal or a sergeant. I only served the one time in the Army and was never in the Navy or Marine Corps. I am a pensioner now at $15 a month and have never applied for a pension or any other service. I was born in Prince County, Maryland, August 12, 1833. It was near Upper Marlboro. My father was William Bowie and my mother was Matilda Bowie. I have a living sister named Amelia Thompson who is the widow of Daniel Thompson but I don't know if she is my only living sister. Nathaniel Bowie, who lives at 1642 10th Street, Northwest D.C., and 
Thomas Bowie, living in Baltimore, Maryland, or my brother. I lived in Prince County, Maryland until 1865. I had been a slave of Roderick McGregor, and after he died, I belonged to Nathaniel McGregor. He was my last owner. I ran away from him and came to Washington just before enlistment. I was first married in 1858 to Nancy Dobson near Upper Marlboro by a white preacher whose name I have forgotten, and we had no marriage license. She died while I was in the Army. That was in Washington, and she had been dead nine months when I heard of it. I never saw her after I went in the Army. I had three children by her. I had worked as a laborer prior to enlistment. My collection, my complexion is dark brown. My eyes and hair are black. My height is five foot four inches. In Washington, I think Washington D.C. I think my height was five feet five inches in enlistment. Were you measured? Yes, I was measured. Did they ask you your birthplace? I don't think they did, but they did ask what I had been doing. The record shows that you were from Virginia. Answer. It must be because I had followed Sherman's cavalry to City Point, Virginia, and told them I had come from there. I just followed them. No, I did not cook for them, and I did not attempt to enlist with them. At the time I enlisted in the 38th U.S. Cavalry, I had lost the tips of the two fingers on my right hand and had no nails on those two fingers. They did not say anything about them at the time of my enlistment. My sister had cut the tips off with a hatchet when we were children. I have no other scars or marks. Then he goes on to talk about, I don't know whether you want me to continue, it talks about some of the battles that they were involved in. It's just amazing to hear the information that he shared about his life and the information that you were able to to gain just from this pension file. I mean, he went in and he had three different names. Three different names, yes. And 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 that is a that is a lesson for anyone who's doing uh, African American research because um, you you have to be in it for the long run because I um, I I refused to stop searching for him. Um, I knew that his, I knew that, according to historical records, that he had fought in the Civil War, uh, and I even contacted a person who wrote uh, who wrote a book that had all of these entries in it about who was who was enlisted and who was drafted. And uh, I once I found out that my ancestor actually wasn't drafted, he ran away. I had written to tell him, but. Um, it, it's the name changes are are very difficult because I realized after doing research that uh, you're never going to find all of your your ancestors because many 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 slaves who once they became free uh, some took names of the places they were from some took their slave owner's name some. Uh, probably despised their slave owners so much they they didn't dare keep their name. Um, it's, it's very, very difficult because we could, you could be, you could pass by uh, one of your ancestors uh, or one of your, one of your, uh, one of your family members, 
um, in the street, and you wouldn't know it because uh, many, many times the names were changed, and that's that's what makes it so difficult. I know uh, they mentioned, uh, I know that William mentioned in the uh, military pension records that uh, he had he uh, had other brothers uh, living in Alabama. He didn't even know whether they were still alive. And um, uh, I've also found records of, um, you have to remember that slaves, uh, I believe that William Bowie, uh, my, my uh, third great-grandfather, I believe that he most likely, uh, he had other children, and uh, they, they, sometimes didn't just have one wife, you know. Uh, many times yes. the, they were separated. So the the the, the length and breadth of, of the family members, it, it, it's almost impossible to to follow it. You know, slavery, uh, slavery, they didn't keep r- good records on, on, on what was going on with slaves. The only, only time you'll really find any source of information is, that their slave owners kept personal property lists, they kept business transactions, but um, many times the slaves weren't even mentioned by name in, in their records. So it's very well, you difficult. mentioned the slaves and slave owners, and so you said the Magruders or the McGregors. Now, have you made any connection to the descendants of the Magruders or the McGregors, as you said? No, that I I haven't done. I ha- I haven't actually uh, reached out to. Uh, uh, I was very fortunate in in. Um, I was very fortunate as far as the Bowie Bowie family went, because I knew I knew what the uh, Bowie I knew what my great 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 grandparents' names were, but I could never find them listed in slavery, and and. One strange thing that happened was that um, uh, an author named Susan Tishi, she she actually was researching her ancestors, and she found my slave ancestors in bondage, and she posted it on her website, and that's how I was able to first see the uh, the the, uh, personal property list of William and Matilda. I I saw that online. And she had posted it. She had a website called uh, may I mention it? Sure. She has a website called uh Magruder's Landing and that was the first time that I actually saw my ancestors uh documentation on them. She had li- she had posted the 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 uh the the account from the personal property account from uh, from uh, Roderick McGregor's uh, 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 from from his uh, probate records, and it actually showed my my family. It showed uh, what their value was and everything. And it was very uh, to see that in front of you is is, is very uh, very difficult to see. You know, it it kind of brings to it kind of brings it right in front of you. You know what slavery really was. Right, it really hits you. But Susan uh, Tushy did something that many uh, African-American researchers would hope 
that the names of individuals that they find in their records is made public so that Mm -hmm. you could at least find them. And as you said, in Magruder's Landing, your ancestors were on that inventory list. Right. Mm -hmm. And while reality hits you, I mean, it is painful to see your, your ancestors listed as property she did you a favor by providing that oh, yeah. list. Definitely. And so, you know, there's a comment coming out that one file leads to another. And within eight or ten files, you start to get the history also of the community. Right. But you said something a little earlier, and you said that there's a lesson, I guess, to be learned uh, to be shared with individuals that when you get involved in this genealogy, you have to be in it for the long run. You really do. It's not a look and see and stop. (laughs) And it sounds like you didn't do that. You continue. You continue to look. But there's another question, and it's back to the uh, depositions and the and maybe some of the witnesses. Did you uh, pull any files of any of the witnesses on the uh, Civil War pension file that you reviewed? Um, you said, did I pull them? Yes. Did you look at any of the witnesses to find out who they were? Oh, oh yeah. I I believe I I believe that uh, in in the book I believe that I actually included uh some of those witnesses because uh two I know that two of the witnesses were actual um uh people that had served with with William in the Civil War they actually were were in his regiment and um let's see whether I see that um and uh they also they also spoke to um to his family members, and one of them was my uh, great-great-grandfather. He he actually did one of the depositions also because uh, because because he had went by that that false name. Uh, they made it very difficult for him. They they were determined that they were going to uh, find out whether he was he was real or or an imposter. And um, yes, and um, so they interviewed his his brothers. Uh, they interviewed his his daughter, and they also interviewed uh, a, a couple of uh, the people that he served with. And uh, but this was many years later uh, when they interviewed some of these other uh, when they interviewed some of these other people that had served with him. It was many years later, and they actually showed them an old old photograph of him, and um, you know. And like I said, it had been many years, maybe 40 years after the war, after the Civil War, and their memories, they were old men by then, and they, in some cases, they weren't sure that he was the person, but, uh, uh, okay, I, I, I found one if you'd like me to read it. Sure. Okay. Uh, it says, on the 23rd day of July 1909 at Baltimore, Maryland, personally appeared John C. Rustine during a special investigation of a claim for pension. Uh, it said, Deposition E, 
It says, my age is 76 years old. My address is 244 North Schroeder Street, Baltimore, Maryland. I am unable to work. You have shown me an old tintype without stating any names or nature of business. The face is familiar, but I cannot place the man or when and where I saw him. It appears that I had seen that man before, but I don't know when. Question, did you see him in the service? Answer, I am trying to get at it now, but I can't place him. Question, were you in Company F, 38th Regiment, United States Colored Infantry? Answer, yes, I was the second sergeant in that company, and I served from 1864 to 1867. Question, can you place that man as a member of your company? Answer, I can't as it stand. Question, is it Robert Henderson, James Butler, Daniel Johnson, Frederick Jones, or Robert Tompkin? Answer, I knew every name you called but can't just say whether that picture shows any of those men. Question, have you seen any of them since discharge? Answer, I was a witness for Robert Tompkin when I was in Washington, but I don't recall seeing any any of the others. I cannot place that picture as of Robert Tompkins. He joined the company at Chapin's Farm on the James River and served in Virginia until after the fall of Richmond and then went to Texas with the with the regiment. He was a private and joined long after me. I think he was discharged the same time as me. And it goes on and on. But uh, they they actually spoke to about three people that served with him and um and then they also, uh, like I said, they uh, they also spoke to uh, at least three or four family members. So they were determined to find out uh, whether that was him. Um, you know, in 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 the book, I had uh, um, I had included a a photograph of of Williams' uh, grave, and uh, he was buried under the name Robert Tompkins, even though that's not his birth name. But the military. They buried him under his military name. Right, that's right. So William Bowie is the grandson of a slave and also the founder of the Industrial Savings Bank. Yes. So tell mm-hmm. us about that bank. I mean, since you have... You're pulling all of these family members together, just as you your title says, the tides that bind from slavery to freedom. So tell us about your last journey or entry into your book about the bank. Okay. Um, I have to start with John uh, Whitelaw Lewis. Uh, he he was a uh, one of the co-founders. Uh, and most people, if you... If you Google John Whitelaw Lewis, you'll find uh, a handful of information about him. He uh, he uh, also uh, built a uh, a uh, hotel in Washington D.C. that was built for uh, black people because at the time uh, there were no accommodations for them in, in Washington D.C. So he was a very important man in Washington D.C. I had when I started out my research, I found out about John Lewis. Once I found out about my great uncle William and and the uh, and the and the savings bank, um, there was very little information on on John Whitelaw Lewis, and I had contacted the uh, 
Historical Society of Washington, D.C., and uh, they had a handful of information. So I started combing through the African-American newspapers, and I pieced together a story. Anyway, John Whitelaw Lewis, he was, he was born in Bowling Green, uh, Virginia, in 1867, and he, he had received very little form, formal education as a child. He spent most of his time at farming and working at a local sawmill. In 1888, he married, uh, he married Amy Fortune, and in 1894, he and his wife and two sons came to Washington, D.C. With, with Coxley's Army. And Coxley's Army was a march on Washington in 1894 to protest the unemployment caused by the Panic of 1893. William August Bowie was the eldest son of Nathaniel and Victoria Bowie, and he had uh, attended uh, both public and private schools in Washington, D.C., and he was a member of many Masonic and community organizations, such as the True Reformers, where he had been deputy chief. In 1907, uh, John Lewis formed the Laborers Building and Loan Association with William A. Bowie, serving as its secretary. Through Lewis's organization, he had hoped to encourage the black working class to save a portion of their earnings and to also insist any who might want to purchase homes. By selling stock at $25 a share, the venture was immediately successful. In 1909, Lewis opened the Hiawatha Theater, the first Negro-owned theater in the country. The blueprint for the form, form, form the blueprint for the uh, for the uh, formulation of the Industrial Savings Bank was created in the parlor of William Bowie's older sister, Ella M. Gunnell, on May 1, 1913. The Industrial Savings Bank was opened in Washington, D.C. Uh, the bank was created to serve the needs of the African-American community. For years, the black residents could make a deposit in a white-owned bank, but they were denied loans for home purchases or to start a small business. In 1919, John Whitelaw Lewis built the Whitelaw Hotel, and it became Washington, D.C.'s first luxury hotel for African Americans. By the year 1977, the building had fallen into disrepair and was closed by the city. In 1991, Mana Incorporated purchased the building, and they restored the hotel to its former glory. It was included in the National Register of Historic Places on July 14, 1993. The Industrial Savings Bank remained in operation until 1932 when it failed during the national banking crisis. Reorganized as the Industrial Bank by Jesse Mitchell in 1934, it is still doing business along U Street. What a wonderful history. What an amazing history. So you have taken us from slavery in New Jersey, emancipation, underground railroad, the Civil War pension files, and now the Industrial Savings Bank. And, I mean, there's, there's something that you have just helped un all of us understand. You have pieced together this history that you didn't know when you first started off. 
and you have really inspired us. I mean, do you have any parting words for us so that those who are listening, that they will take take away something from you as far as how they can look at the ties that bind from slavery to freedom? Um, yeah, I would like to... Uh... I would like to take an excerpt from my book because, for me, it provides the essence of, of where my journey began and continues. Uh, I, I would like to read this. Um, okay. I, sinc- I sincerely hope that the writing of this book serves in some way towards encouraging others to discover both their own family history and the importance of the ties that bind. I continue to pray that my children and grandchildren readily assume the responsibility of keeping the ancestral fires burning and that I have provided a spark that ignites a thirst in them to seek out knowledge of their family. May we be inspired by our dreams of Africa. As people of color, let us honor the beauty, culture, and memory of our beloved ancestors who celebrated life so many centuries ago long before the slave traders came. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing sharing your journey with us tonight. And for everyone else, please remember your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history family records, and research at the National Archives and beyond. Now, you can continue this discussion on the research at the National Archives and beyond and Afrogenius.com Facebook pages. And also remember to listen to the African Roots podcast with Angela Walton Raji and also watch for the Black Progen Live with host Nika Sewell-Smith. Thank you so much for joining research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This show is sponsored by your host, Bernice Beebe's Genealogy Research and Educational Services, LLC. My website is www.geniebroots.com. And I look forward to all of you joining me next Thursday. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. Good night, everyone. Good night, James. Good night.